invite you to take your scriptures with me and turn back to James chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verse 12. Feel free to participate. I, in fact, I need your help here. Um, I looked up the top 10 commercial jingles of all time. Now, if you are probably below 40, you may not know some of these, but those of you who are slightly older like myself um, can help me out. Ready? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start them all and you fill it in the last part. Ready? Here's the first one. Oh, I wish I was a... Right, Oscar Mayer, right? Number one, by the way. How about this one? Give me a break. Give me a break. See? And you better not know these better than the scriptures, I'm telling you right now. <laughs> Have it your way. Have it your way. What? Come on, at Burger King. Okay, that one wasn't as great. Um, how about this? $5 foot long. What's that one? Subway. Subway. How about this? Like a good neighbor. There you go. You guys are good. And how about this? They're magically delicious. Lucky Charms, they're great. Frosted Flakes, and not to be forgotten, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, oh. What is it? Alka-Seltzer. All right. I am stuck on... Come up here and preach this, Sandy. Right, right. And now this one, all right, this is the one I want you to get. Ready? You may think it's butter, but it's not. It's chiffon. And, and remember this one? Remember the little butter jar container? It would go butter, and then it would be really parquet, right? Right, because it was margarine, right? And, and what's the point of it? The point of it is that it looked like butter. It tasted like butter, but it's not. It's chiffon. Now let me tell you this, that's what the letter of James is for. That's why we made the title of this series, A Non-Fiction Fate. Because, you know what parquet and chiffon are? They're imitations. <laughs> They're not the real thing. You may think, see, there are, listen, this is what James knows. This is important for us. James knows that there are certain types of people out there, and their faith looks like it's real, but it's, it looks like it's, can I say it this way? Butter faith. It looks like it's real, but it's margarine faith. It's chiffon faith, right? And, and you may think it is real, and it may look like it is, but it's not. See, it's chiffon faith, if I can say it that way. That's why James, throughout the entire writing of this letter, he gives us a series of tests throughout the epistle and here's why he gives it. To, here's what he wants you to do this morning when you read verse 12. He wants you to examine your faith to see whether it is authentic, whether it's genuine. And so we've looked at the endurance test. That was verses 2 through 4. And then we looked at verses 5 through 8. That was the wisdom test, right? And then in verses 9 through 11, we looked at the boasting test. And so he wants to come back. And really, I would call this the endurance test part 2. But it's very specific. It's enduring trials. 
Now, in the text, if you look there with me in verse 12, it reads, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. And the word to remain steadfast is the word endurance. In fact, the word endurance brackets this whole part of the first chapter. It's also mentioned in verses one, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, and chapter 12. And in between is what your life looks like when you're actually enduring. Enduring trials and temptations. Staying under the pressures and the problems that God brings into your life. Listen to me this morning. Enduring those things does not make you a real Christian. You do not earn your salvation. We know that salvation is all of grace. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We know that, but here's what James says, that when you endure trials, it doesn't make you a real Christian, it demonstrates that you are a real Christian. See, perseverance in trials and temptations show whether the faith we claim to have is genuine or is it margarine. Matthew 13, Jesus told a parable about different kinds of soil. And in those four types of soil, there was one called, in Matthew 13, 20, 21, rocky ground. And here's what Jesus says about it. The rocky ground faith hears the word of God and receives it with joy. In other words, kind of like you come to church and you're happy. The Bible says something, you want to believe it. It says, yet, here's what happens over time. It has no root in and of itself, but endure, see there's our word, endures, but how long? But just for a little while. It doesn't really keep, when persecution, it says, and when tribulations and persecution trials arise on account of the word, it immediately falls away. And here's what Jesus says. See, it looks like butter. <laughs> it looks like it. But when you really get down to it, it's margarine. And you really can't tell the difference until really difficult things come into that person's life. And you can see because they stop coming to church, they don't like certain things, things happen in their life that they didn't plan on, they didn't want to happen, they start blaming God, they get upset, they get disillusioned with Christianity, I thought it was going to be completely different. Have you ever been there? You ever been there? You, been, you there this morning? See, people start, stop coming, and you know what happens? It endures just for a little while, and then it's gone. And the reason is, is because their faith is rootless, Jesus says. See, that's the way, or one of the ways you can tell whether a person's faith in Jesus is real. It's, it's demonstrated in how they respond to the trials and the difficulties that come into their life. So let me tell you how important this truth is. And that's why I read all the way to verse 15. Here's my idea this morning. How a person responds to trials and temptations is a matter of life and death. Life meaning if you are responding correctly, you'll get the crown of life. But if you go down to the verse 15, which we're going to cover next time, it says this. If you get into sin because you don't endure your trials and temptations and you end up letting sin control you, here's what it brings. Not a crown of life. It brings forth, at the end of verse 15, death. So the verse begins in life and then it ends in death because here's what James wants you to consider this morning. That how you respond as a Christian to trials or someone who professes to be a Christian is a matter of life and death. So we're going to look at the positive side this morning in verse 12 and then the negative side in verses 13 through 15 next week. But let me say it plain and simple. Every single one of us in this room this morning, if you are truly a real Christian, you will be tested. 
Your faith will be tested by trials and temptations. And here's the reason why. So that you will understand whether it is genuine or not. Please listen and look to 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. Look what the text says. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 reads, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while you have been grieved by various trials. See? Various trials. So that... Why, God, why does God bring the trials in your life this morning that you're facing? So that... Here's the purpose. The tested genuineness of your faith. Tested... Not just genuineness... The tested genuineness of your faith. How important is it? Well, it's more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. It may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know anything about metallurgy, you'll know that there are numerous ways to test gold to see if it's the real stuff. And the major test, or you may have heard this used in modern vocabulary. It's the acid test. You ever heard someone say, well, this is the acid test in life. Well, it comes from how they test gold. They take whatever gold object you have, they put it in a little stainless steel container. And all they do is drop one little drop of nitric acid on it. And depending on the reaction of that supposed gold to the drop of acid will determine whether it's real, authentic, and genuine pure gold or not. So if it, when the drop of acid goes on it and it turns green, you'll know that it's not pure gold. In fact, there's no gold whatsoever in it. It's just a bunch of mixed metals. If it kind of responds by turning a little bit of milky white, you'll know that whatever it is is gold-plated. In other words, not underneath the surface, but on the outside, there's a very, very thin little plate of gold around it. It's not authentically all the way through gold. Just the appearance of it is. You see where I'm tracking? But if when the nitric acid hits the gold object in the stainless steel box and there is no reaction to it, then you'll know it's absolutely pure gold. See, it's the reaction to the nitric acid that proves whether it's pure gold. See, the testing of the gold isn't what makes it pure gold. It's already pure gold, if it really is. But the testing proves, the testing shows, the testing demonstrates whether it is authentically pure gold or not. So let me ask you straight out. What is your response to trials and temptations in the last year or two under COVID, under stress, under problems? What are your responses saying about the genuineness of your faith? How do the tests that you're facing, the acid tests that you're facing, do they demonstrate that your faith is strong and alive and vibrant in Jesus Christ? Or does it leave you doubting and perhaps even questioning its validity? In recent days and months and years, I've talked to people who face the acid marriage test. In fact, this morning, you might even say, well, it's pretty intense at my house. Hard to endure, you might find it, the spouse's constant criticisms that you face. Perhaps your husband or your wife's very constant ungodly behavior. Maybe the levels of selfishness have risen to such an extent in your home that you're not sure that you can continue in that. 
See, there's the acid marriage test. There's the acid health test. And people have got COVID. You're afraid of the Delta strain. And, and I, I understand. And, and people who have fight and do fight cancer. And there are people who have chronic conditions, chronic health conditions who are in our church who never get a day off from it. How's your response to it? You're constantly getting test after test. There's no solution. There's no real lasting cure. There's this medicine, that medicine. But really in the end, nothing drastic or radical ever really changes. Or the acid emotional test. And if you're honest this morning and you could sit down and, and just really talk about your tests, you might say there's an emotional upheaval, a roller coaster ride as it were, Fear, anxiety, depression at times, loneliness, don't know where you're going to turn, the worry about what's going to happen down the road in the future, the anger that is built up because you can't control your life and most of the things in it. How are you responding? That's what we want to do this morning in James 1.12. We want to unpack James's one little beatitude. He has a beatitude that talks about persevering through problems. He says it this way, how do you remain steadfast under trials? Not just escape them, not just get out of them, but how do you maintain steadfast in your devotion to Jesus Christ under the most difficult pressures in life? Well, he's going to tell us how we can begin to think and how we can begin to respond rightly as a Christian to our trials. And he starts with the beatitude. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man. That little phrase is used 11 times in the Bible. Nine of them are in the Old Testament. Two of them in the New Testament. Seven out of the 11 of them are from Psalms. And I say that to tell you this. Because James, all throughout the epistle, beginning in chapter 1, all the way to the end, talks about wisdom. And so let me say it up front with you. See, if you're going to respond rightly to trials, if you're really going to understand what the real blessed life is, you're going to need a wisdom outside of American culture. You're going to need a wisdom that does not come from or find its source in you. You're going to need wisdom that comes from God to be able to view life differently than you would have otherwise. See, at the end of James, in chapter 5 and verse 11, there's three Beatitudes James has. 1, 12, ours, verse 25, and 5, 11. He says, we consider him blessed, meaning Job, who remains steadfast. Now you think of Job, and what do you think of? Well, he lost all ten children in a day. He lost all of his possessions, his lands. His, he lost pretty much everything that meant anything to him in just a matter of, a small matter of time. So you look at his life, and, and you wonder, how can James says, we count him blessed? How can that be? So let me ask you, how would you define the blessed life? So I decided I'm going to find out what people think. I don't have an Instagram account, but I read an article where a woman who does went on Instagram and she put in hashtag blessed. And she said she found 100 million posts on it. So a lot of people must be wanting to know the answer to this question that we're asking this morning. And in the article, which is titled, Blessed May Not Mean What You Think. And she put in there that she was reading one of these articles that she found, or a post, I should say, on the, on the Instagram. 
And the hashtag highlighted, and if you go on it, you'd see it has beautiful places, beautiful people. There are new babies, pictures of new babies, successful people's careers and what they're able to buy, graduation parties, uh, food and life in abundance. And then if you scroll down a little bit more, you'll see wonderful technology, new marriages, fancy cars. And this was a Christian site or a Christian post. And she said all of those things can be good gifts of God to humanity. But she couldn't help by scrolling down and seeing all the things that were mentioned there describing the blessed life that she came to the realization that the site or the, or the Instagram post said the only way God blesses is with good things. That was her conclusion. So I asked, have we defined the blessed life and happiness only through goodness? Is that all there really is to the blessed life? The article goes on, and let me quote her. She says, Imagining opening up your Instagram feed and reading about a woman who has just lost her job. In her post, she wonders how she will make next month's mortgage. In it, she wonders how she's going to be able to get school supplies for her children this fall. In the post, it says that she desperately is asking help because she needs to pay for a car that isn't running and she doesn't know how she's going to get around. The author asked this question, what would her hashtag be? Not blessed? So she goes on, she says, but maybe this, a post about a mother whose child lives with a myriad of birth-related problems. Her most recent posts are about physical suffering, learning disabilities, and the independent life her child will never have. Would her hashtag be cursed? See, the blessed life, according to James, hear me, is not found in life a life of only good things. Good things without trials. Instead, the blessed life, according to James, is a life that has goodness and trials rightly responded to. And so Job says, after losing everything that God had given him that was meaningful to his life, in Job 1.21, here's what he says, and you know the phrase, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord and I put James's words together with Job's words. And you know what I found? I want to ask you a question. What if, just what if the blessed life is pro not primarily about the blessing I can get from God, but the blessing I can give to God, even in my darkest days? See, if you're able to remain under trials in a steadfast way, I believe after reading this verse, you're going to, probably a lot of us, or some of us anyways, are going to need to start with a new definition of what the blessed life is. It's not escaping trials. In fact, be honest this morning. If you've gone through some difficulty late, what is the first prayer out of your mouth? God, get me out of this. God, solve this problem. God, take this away from me. And certainly that is a real genuine prayer. But can it be that there's more to it than that? What if the blessed life is not just escaping trials, it's enduring them, as James says. It's letting God bring the acid test into your life so that you can be proven 
and your test and the acid test of your faith just gives credence to your genuineness. Now, what happens, you might say, Pastor Walker, what happens when the result of my life and my response to my trials is the right response? Well, he says in verse 12, this phrase, look at it in text. For when he has stood the test, now notice, when he has stood the test, this is what happens after you have responded rightly to it, when you have found God to be your blessing, when you can still love him and bless him and, and worship him despite all the things that have gone wrong in your life that you would never have asked for. He says, when he has stood the test and remained faithful and devoted to Jesus, then he will receive the crown of life. The little phrase stood the test is one Greek word, dokimazo. And you know what it means? It means that you are approved after testing. It's the results of perseverance. Let me say it one more time, just so I'm clear. Passing the test does not make you saved. But passing the test proves that you are saved. It demonstrates it. It shows it. See, passing the acid, acid test Think of it this way. Is God's stamp of approval on your faith. Gold, at times, to prove its authenticity or its genuineness, often if you'll have in a ring, there'll be a little thing that says 14K on it or 24K on it, carrot, to show you how authentic it is, how pure it is, the level of purity it has. But that's not just with gold. A lot of companies, because their jewelry or the things they have are very expensive, authenticate it and put a stamp on it. Sometimes very small to see. In fact, you'd have to magnify it to be able to detect it, but it's there. In fact, not too long ago, I had someone tell me a true story about they inherited some very large, large diamond earrings and a Cartier bracelet. And so they inherited them, and so they decided that they needed to go to a jewelry store because they needed to have the jeweler take a look at the earrings and the bracelet and to verify how much they were worth that they were going to properly insure them because they thought that they were told that they were worth thousands and thousands of dollars. So they left the earrings and the bracelet with the jeweler and thinking they would come back in a few days when they had it done. But they didn't even make it home and were told to come back. And that was a little surprising. They couldn't believe how fast they could get that done. And they walked back in the jewelry store, and to their shock, they were a little embarrassed because the jeweler said that they're not real. They were not real. That together, the bracelet and the earrings equaled $30, not thousands. And they asked, well, how, how do you really know? Because she says, Cartier bracelets are stamped with the word Cartier on the inside. And that's how you know the difference between them and fakes. Now that was embarrassing, don't you think? I mean, thinking, telling the lady that you need to insure these things and they weren't even worth the money that probably was $30 at all. That's all it was. They didn't have the stamp of approval. Listen to this verse. Romans 16.10 says, and you may have not even read this before, greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. The word approved in Romans 16.10 is the same word arhas, stood the test, approved after testing. Apparently, whoever Apelles is, Paul knew him, 
and he had gone through a lot of severe testing, maybe some acid tests, and he had gone through perhaps suffering as a Christian in the Roman context in which he lived. And Paul, knowing his life and how he had responded to it, here's his one sentence about this guy. He's approved in Christ. The guy has stood the test and has God's stamp of approval on him. Let me ask you, is that true for you? The way that you've responded to your suffering, to your difficulty, to your financial setbacks, to your relationship difficulties, God would respond to you how? With a stamp of approval or not so much? I think back over all the years I've been at Faith Baptist Church, and there are many more that I could ever say publicly, but even recently in her memorial service, I think of Sandy Steele, and to think of the seal of approval God must have put on her, the stamp of approval. Just all the suffering. Every time I visit Sandy Steele, she'd have something positive to say. I, Nancy Rolone is here today, you know, always struggling for years and years. She said, I never thought I'd make it to 70 years old. Didn't you say that to me? All the lung problems and stuff like that. I visit Carolyn Stout, who fell and broke her rib, which is right next to her lung, and she's had a disease. She said, they've already, I already lived two and a half years past what they said I ever would. But out of Nancy's and Carolyn's mouth is nothing but praise to God. I've had the butlers, I would have had them come up today, but I've had them so much up here, I think I could tell their story of their children and all the things that they've gone in their life, their own personal health problems. I mean, the way they respond to trials, not because anyone's perfect, not because it's not difficult. See, but God's stamp of approval is demonstrated by the way that people go through trials. And we could talk about Josephine Cyprus. We could talk about Chris Conover. We could talk about, even more recently, people going through difficulties. I can think of Kathy and her love for her sister and her nephew, even while she fights cancer. See, that's what God's talking about. That's what James is pointing to. He says, see, when you have responded by standing the test of, of difficulty, the acid test, here's what he says. Here's what the results are. Not because you earned it, but because the way that you responded proves that this is the result. You will receive the crown of life. Now, in the Bible, there are two types of crowns. There is the Greek word diadema, and you can see it, diadem. It's a royal crown with the jewels encrusted and embedded in it. It's the one that royalty, people who sit on a throne, that's the kind of crown that that word talks about. But that's not the word in this text. The word in this text is Stephanos, and we get Stephen from it. It's the martyr's crown, and more specifically, and the people who would have read James would have known it, even though they lived in Jerusalem, they would understand it's the Olympic Games crown. It's the one you get at Tokyo if you're able to, if they're going to have that. And, and I don't know if you've ever seen this, the athletic, where the Olympians come up and on the stage. Now today, they have a, a triple stage with gold, silver, and metal, and they put a medal around you. They play the gold medal person's, you know, their, their uh, song for their country, their anthem. And, and so the, it's a moving ceremony, seemingly almost every single time. But in, back in the day, back in the Olympics, early in, in Paul's time, in James' time, see, they had a laurel wreath. And they put the laurel wreath on your head, and you were declared the victor. You were the winner. You're the one who struggled against all the other competitors, against yourself mainly, and you were the one who finished and you won. Here's what James says. It's a struggle. It is a difficulty. It is, and that's the word agony. That's what we get the word agony. This is the struggle that athletic people, Olympic people go through. 
And, and, and here's what James says. I know you had to give up a lot. I know you had to change your life to be able to put Jesus first in the most difficult times is never an easy thing. And when you don't understand why God gives you cancer and why this happens to your family and what happened with this job and why didn't your marriage work out? And see, you don't understand because God doesn't tell you everything. And to stay faithful to him and to love him is never easy. But he says, and when you do, by his grace, you will receive a crown of life. What is the crown of life? Well, it's not really a laurel wreath material, living, a real laurel wreath. You know what it is? A.T. Robertson, the famous Greek scholar, said this. The Greek says it this way, the crown which is life. It's not a crown that God gives you as a reward so much as it is a result See, one of the things you demonstrate about your faith being real is how you respond to trials. It is the stamp of approval. And God says it just proves that you have a real faith in me because you stayed faithful to me. You know, the only other time in the New Testament that the phrase, the crown of life, is used is in God's promise to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2 and verse 10. And here's how it reads. Be faithful unto death. That's endurance. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, or the crown which is life. But how long did they have to endure? Pastor Walker, how long do I have to go through this stuff? You know, it's not easy every day. I know, I know. How, how long do I have to be faithful to him under these types of circumstances? Unto death. Unto death. That's how long. He says, but when you do, there is a crown that is waiting for you. That's God's stamp. You remain faithful to him. You love him. You stay devoted to him, even if it ends your life. And he says there is a crown of life. Now listen, though. You might want to think at the end of all of this that, that listen, God just wants me to grin and bear it. God, you know, I, I have a bad marriage. I, I got this situation at my job, my health crisis. I'm just going to suck it up and... and, and and grin and bear it and just get through all of this. No, it's more than that, really. God just doesn't want you to weather the storm and, and try to get through it just by pulling yourself up by your bootstraps on the outside. He doesn't want you just to be stoic about it all. This is what God's given me, and if I got to do this to you know, get the crown up. No, it's not like that. Because there's a qualifier in this verse. There's a qualifier. Did you read it? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he received the crown of life, listen, which God has promised to those who love him. We don't often, we don't, in fact, we tend to overlook those little phrases in the Bible. Let me give you an example. If I asked you to say, quote to me Romans 8.28, you might say this, all things work together for good to those who know God. But that's not how the verse starts. Did you know that? Here's how the verse starts. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Do you see what he says? Here's the stipulation. You love God. You stay faithful and loyal to him. All things, even the worst things, will work together for your good. For those who love God, James says it again in chapter 2 and verse 5. He says this, 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith, heirs of the kingdom? Well, who are these heirs of the kingdom? Listen to this. Which he has promised to those who love him. See, it doesn't matter whether we found out. It doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. That doesn't make any difference in God's eyes when he looks at you. It's not your power. It's not your status. It's not your position. You know what makes the difference? You know why you're an heir of the kingdom? Because he is so worked in your heart by the Holy Spirit that you love him. Even when you're poor. Even when you don't have anything. Even if faithfulness and devotion to him costs you everything. He says, that's who are heirs of the kingdom. You see, that's what he wants us to see this morning. That when we persevere in our trials, it is so that we can get the crown of life. But what is the motivation? Because Pastor Walker, I don't know, sometimes the crown seems so far off. What am I, what's going to motivate me now? Here's what he says. Loving God. Loving God. So James is really pointedly saying this to us. Do you love God enough to keep going? Do you love God enough to persevere? Because I'm telling you this morning, you certainly don't love your circumstances enough to do it. And you may, you, you would hate to say it, but you may not love your spouse enough to do it. And you may not love what's happening in your body and the, and the difficulty. You certainly don't love that. And none of those loves are going to keep you going Day after day. But you know what will? A love for God who is faithful and kind and patient every single day. See, here's what he says. He's promised it to those who love him. I have found that when you love someone, I mean deeply, that you can persevere almost anything. Right? You could love your child, and you'll go through all the pain of childbirth. You'll do things as a parent that you wouldn't do for anybody else. Why? Because you love your children. Jacob was fooled by Laban. He worked seven years and thought Rachel was his, and then he got, can I say, deceived? And so you know what he said? I'm done with that. I'll find somebody. No, you know what he did? He worked seven more years. Why would he persevere after all of that? Why? Because it says of the love that he had for her. 1 Corinthians 13 says in verse 4, what? All you people had this at your wedding. What does it say? Love endures all things. It does. It perseveres. It keeps going. When nothing else can motivate you, inspire you, compel you, here's what he says. Love for God will do it if your faith is real. So let me ask you one more time. How are you responding to the trials and the acid tests God has brought into your life? Do you know why he's brought them? One of the reasons, one of the purposes is so that you can see whether your faith is genuine whether the stamp of God's approval is on your life in the way that you respond. God says, for those who do, it's the crown of life. I, I want to someday, and I hope you do too, I want to stand on God's podium. And I, I want him to put the victor's crown on my head, not because I'm worthy, but because in Jesus Christ he has made me worthy. And by his grace, 
I have endured and persevered and stayed faithful to him, even unto death. I pray that that's the faith that you and I have. Let's close in prayer.